Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Anthology of Horror. I am your host and your narrator, Spring Heel Jack. I want to thank all consistent listeners for continuing to tune back in. I genuinely appreciate the support, and I appreciate you guys telling your friends because I can see that you're doing so as the fan base has grown exponentially. So thank you very much for doing that. To all new listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. I appreciate you guys checking out the podcast. Uh, Let it be said, however, before we get going, that this podcast is not safe for work. It is not safe to play in front of your sissy kids, and it is probably not wise to play it for your mother because I tend to swear quite a bit. I also tend to make politically incorrect jokes, and I don't have any intention of changing that. So if that offends you, this is your one opportunity to turn this podcast off or suffer the consequences, ye be warned. And I will be right back after a message from this fake company that does not sponsor me. The Hendersons are getting a new fence. Ah, who cares? They're swingers. I want a new fence. We just got one two years ago after your parents were killed. I want a new fence. That's it. We're never having sex again. Need a home loan fast? At the American Bank of Los Santos, we'll help you get the debt you need to make life easier. We'll show you how to look richer and be poorer. Your home is your equity. What exactly are you saving it for? You need to impress people fast, not in 20 years. It's only a risk if you get into money troubles or the economy changes, which doesn't seem likely. We know living in the suburbs is a constant competition where you're defined by your lawn and your siding. Call American Bank of Los Santos when you need to add a rec room addition with a jungle swing or a jacuzzi for eight. Now that the kids have moved out and have drug problems of their own, maybe it's time to install a luxury marble wet bar so you can get drunk in private. American Bank of Los Santos. Dreams take money. Why worry about tomorrow if you look inadequate today? On that note, let it be said that I sometimes will air commercials for companies that do not exist, nor do they sponsor me. All of the creative content today is owned by Rockstar Games. I have nothing to do with it. I don't own it. I don't claim ownership of it at all. I also value your time. So during the course of this podcast, with the exception of the comedic ads to break up the routine, there will be no serious advertisements because I have not monetized this podcast at all. You get straight content, no bullshit. Because I, for one, am tired of listening to other people's podcasts where it's beginning to roll, I'm getting in the groove of it, I'm listening to it at work, and then I hear, Do you ever wake up tired in the morning? What if I told you that you and 15 out of 35 other Americans have this same problem? Develop a serious crystal meth problem. Whatever. I guess that wouldn't be the solution to the problem, but that's, you know what I'm fucking saying. I'm not going to waste your goddamn time. And on that note, today we're going to get started with a subject that has been of great fascination to me. And it's been on my two research list for quite some time. I finally bought a fucking book about it because um, I, I didn't know much about it. I, I don't really know many people that did. I think it's more of a regional thing. We know the name out here in California where I live, but we don't really know the full story, unfortunately, because it is fascinating. The story has everything. Um, murder, fucking murder, a little bit more murder, fucking, uh, and that is the blood feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys. 
But for those of you that are unfamiliar even with that, let's talk about what is a blood feud before we get started. So the definition of a blood feud is a lengthy conflict between families involving a cycle of retaliatory killings or injury. <sighs> Tit-for-tat killings, essentially. Um, it's really, it's, it's like a, it's kind of a, it's a really fascinating thing. Like the Romeo and Juliet is a perfect example of a blood feud. Um, Long-lasting, bitter disagreement between two or more groups of people, particularly families. Blood feuds often involve members of each group murdering or fighting the others. It's like a gang war between a family. It's, uh, it's really kind of an interesting phenomenon. So, the Hatfields and the McCoys, I would say, are probably the most famous blood feud, with the exception of Romeo and Juliet that I can think of, but this actually happened and it's recorded history. Can't say the same for the uh, Montagues and Capulets. But let's let's dive right into it. We're going to call this the American Legend series. So the uh, main source for today's episode is going to be the Hatfield and McCoy feud. It's a book by Charles River, editor. <laughs> That's my main source. I have a couple other sources that I will cite as I use them. If I don't use them, I won't cite them. But this is my predominantly used source. So... There were men who matched the mountains. They were Hatfields and McCoys. They were men who matched the mountains. They were men when they were boys. A, a short poem by some dude named Jimmy Wolford. So a lot of ink has been spilled covering the lives of history's most influential figures, but how much of the forest is lost for the trees? Um, in these American legend stories that I plan to be doing, we're going to get all you guys caught up to speed in the lives of America's most important men and women uh, in the time that it takes to finish a short commute to work or from work or from job site to job site. While you're going to learn interesting facts long forgotten or never known between obscure figures in American history. This is going to be worked into my regular podcast routine. And if you guys don't like it, send me an email. So the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys is the stuff of American legend and has become synonymous for vendettas. In fact, it has become its own term for any large-scale disagreement that has made its way into everything from music to television and movies. And though the fighting took place over a century ago, Americans remain pretty infatuated with the idea of the Hatfield and the McCoy dispute. As you can clearly see in the just fucking shamelessly done History Channel 2012 miniseries about the feuding family... And it set records for uh, cable television ratings. It just goes to show that people are still interested, interested very thoroughly in this thing, in this particular incident. In this particular instance, Jesus Christ. These days, the feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys is a celebrated piece of American folklore. But for the two families living along the West Virginia slash Kentucky border during the last half of the 19th century, the feud was literally a matter of life and death. It was often called the Hatfield and McCoy War. Uh, 21st century America might celebrate this relic of the country's rural past, but modern society would also likely scoff at the idea of a couple of, of what they would consider hillbilly families taking pot shots at each other through the woods over uh, slights as insignificant as a stolen pig. But at the time, a stolen pig was the fucking livelihood. That's not insignificant at all. It'd be like if somebody stole, I don't know, six months of your pay. Nevertheless, for the Hatfields and the McCoys, the feud was every bit as dangerous as a modern gang turf war or organized crime activity. Yeah. 
While the feud may be harder to understand today, it was a... It was really the byproduct of other conflicts that shaped America's destiny. First, it represents the heritage of the blood feud that came from the United States with those immigrating from Scotland and Ireland. The backcountry of the South was settled predominantly by immigrants from the Celtic fringe of Great Britain, that would be Scotland, Northern England, Cornwall, Wales, and Ireland. And for these settlers, family ties were paramount. Loyalty was key, and conflicts were settled with blood. The feud also demonstrated the continuing importance of honor in the South in the late 19th century, and the notion that personal honor should be defended against actual or perceived slights with violence. Clearly, the South's code of honor persisted long after the Civil War, as did the tension between supporters of the Union and the Confederacy. The Hatfields and the McCoys is considered America's most famous blood feud, like I said. From the origins of each family to the events that sparked the fighting, along with all the different people, places, and events that seem to cross paths with the Hatfields and McCoys during the fighting... It's unbelievable, and I'm uh, I'm, I'm starting to rant. I'm sorry. This is a, it's an interesting one for me. But let's uh, let's get into it. Let's talk about the families. William McCoy, he was born somewhere around the year 1950 in Ireland. Uh, I'm going to try my best not to be biased here on this one, but I do. <laughs> I might lean towards one one of the families in this one, but I'll try my best that you guys don't know which one. So he was born somewhere around the year 1750 in Ireland, and while he was still a young adult, he moved to Doe Hill in beautiful, charming, fucking pride of the uh, the 50 states, Virginia. Around the time of the American Revolution, William went on to have three sons, Samuel, Daniel, and Johnny, all of whom married in established homes on the Kentucky side of Tug Fork, a small stream coming off Big Sandy River. By the time the feud began, there were about a dozen families in that part of the Appalachians who were descended from him. True Irish guy. And William's grandson would be the well-known patriarch of the McCoy clan. Ephraim Hatfield, a contemporary of William McCoy, was born in Yorkshire, England. And like McCoy, he immigrated to America and had three sons. But they settled on the West Virginia side of the fork. He didn't have quite as many descendants in the area as McCoy, but there were 10 Hatfield families in the area by the 1860s. By 1860, the McCoy family was under the leadership of old Randall McCoy, born in 1825. He was the fourth child out of the 13 born to William's middle son, Daniel, and his wife, Margaret. Old Randall, old Randall was married to Sally McCoy, his first cousin. Oh, man, do it right in Appalachia, with whom he has 16 children, had 16 children, all but two of whom lived to adulthood. Oh, my God. Old Randall and Sally owned 300 acres of land in Pike County, Kentucky. And unlike many of his descendants, he would survive the feud and die of, the, of old age in 1914. Holy shit, that man was old. The Hatfield family patriarch, was a guy named William Anderson, a.k.a. Devilance Hatfield. Badass. He was born in 1839 in Logan, Virginia, across the Big Sandy River from the McCoys. His father, 
Ephraim was the grandson of the original settler, settler Ephraim, and was married to a lady named Nancy Vance. <laughs> Nancy Vance. Devil aunts married Lavissi Shafin in 1861, and together they had 13 children as well, all of whom lived to adulthood. Oh, man, so he's went in by two. He owned his own logging business and was extremely wealthy and well-connected uh, to all the members of the community. His operation provided work for his nine sons, as well as many other men in the community, including some of the McCoys. Hmm. So let's talk about something that happened in America in the 1860s, and that is the Civil War. It could be argued that the first shot of the Hatfield and the McCoy feud was fired not in West Virginia instead, but at Fort Sumter, South Carolina, which is where the war broke out, and that is the American Civil War. Because when the Civil War broke out, Virginia seceded after, after the Fort Sumter thing. And though Kentucky never seceded, it was a border state and a slave state. And it was both crucial to the Union war effort and full of Confederate sympathizers. Uh, Lincoln actually was famously quoted as having said, I hope to have God on my side, but I must also have Kentucky. Oof. <laughs> That's how you know it's bad. At the same time, many people in the western hill country of Virginia disagreed with the decision to secede. And after George McClellan's successful campaign against Robert E. Lee in that region in 1861, West Virginia seceded from Virginia and formed its own state. Though most of the Hatfields lived in uh, what became West Virginia, they still were Confederate sympathizers. Frustrated at finding himself on what he considered to be the wrong side of the conflict, Ants organized a group of Confederate guerrillas known as the Logan Wildcats to protect his family and others who might be targeted by Union soldiers. They also trained to run raids into the Union lines to disrupt their plans, but they seem to have actually participated in very few such activities. As a result of the war record, or perhaps in contrast to the uncle for whom he had named for whom he was named Preacher Aunts, Anderson Hatfield was given the nickname Devil Aunts by his family. Historian Bill Richardson cleverly noted that there's one story that his mother said, he's so mean, even the devil's afraid of him. He was a tough guy, supposedly, and he was a leader of men. Uh, what I sort of say is that Devil Aunts was a man who took life by the balls, and Randall seems to be a guy that took it more by the horns. Or that it, excuse me, let me, let me rephrase that. That didn't make as much sense as I'd like it. Devil Aunts was a man who took life by the horns, and Randall seems to be a guy that let life take him by the horns. Got it. Like the Hatfields, the McCoys were also mostly Confederate sympathizers, and since they lived across the river in neutral Kentucky, they were able to enlist in the Confederate Army without any bullshit. However, one member of their family, Asa Harmon McCoy, chose instead to enlist with the Union. He and his wife, Martha, had five children and another one on the way when the war broke out. He fought for two full years before breaking his leg during a marching exercise. How? Um, but while his injury was not life-threatening, it did prevent him from being able to continue his military service, so he set off for home in 64. When Asa arrived back home, he didn't exactly return to a hero's welcome. Most of his brothers and cousins were still fighting for the South, and no one was very happy that he had chosen to join the other side. Even worse, 
Asa McCoy's decision had enraged Jim Vance, who was the uncle of Devalance Hatfield, and Asa was warned that Vance was looking for him and that he should expect a less-than-friendly call from the Logan Wildcats at some time in the near future. At first, McCoy ignored the warnings as the ravings of a man angry because the Confederacy was being stomped on and the South was being burned down. However, one day, while he was outside drawing water from his well, Asa heard gunshots nearby and he became frightened. Ran back to his house and told Martha what had happened and that he was going to be hiding in the nearby cave until the trouble flew over. He took what provisions he could and asked her to send more by his family slave Pete the next day. He remained in the cave for the next several weeks while the Logan Wildcats searched for him. Eventually, they saw Pete leaving the McCoy farm and followed his footprints through the snow to where Asa was and where he was hiding. It was there that they shot and killed him on January 7th, 1865. And so our story begins. Devil Aunt Hot Hatfield was immediately the suspected of the murder, and he may very well have been the mastermind behind it, but it was proven that he was in home in bed with some sort of a illness the day that Asa was murdered conveniently. But with that, the suspicion fell on Jim Vance. However, no eyewitnesses ever came forward to prove anything, and no one that was in the area, or if they were, they weren't inclined to put much of an effort into investigating the murder of a man considered to be a traitor by pretty much everyone in the area, including his family. <laughs> Even his own relatives were known to have remarked that he got what he deserved, and no one was ever charged or prosecuted for the murder of him. Well, isn't that sweet? While most historians mark Ace's murder as the first event in the blood feud, it was really more of an isolated incident. Because most of his family disagreed with his decisions to fight for the Union in the first fucking place, they took no sort of retaliatory action against Vance, Devil, or any other Hatfield at this time. Instead, they buried their dead and the incident along with it and went about their daily bullshit. Things in the area returned to normal, and when the war ended, everyone on both sides of the tug fork went back to their own business of fucking their cousins and, you know, pushing the sheep through the fence. In fact, there would never have been a feud had it not been for the events that transpired over a decade after Ace's murder. In 1888, Sam Hill, who was the adjunct general for the governor of Kentucky, concluded that this was an isolated incident, and that means the uh, murder of Asa. And he was quoted as saying that the charge that the vendetta originated during the war is not sustained by the facts. For while it is true... Hermer McCoy, a brother of Randolph, was murdered after his discharge and returned home from the Union Army. His murder was attributed to old James Vance, and none of his kindred ever attempted, as far as I could learn, to avenge his death. And Johnson Hatfield, son of Anderson, has since married his daughter. Wow. Surprised. All right. Let's talk about the pig. Let's talk about the Romeo and Juliet-style lovers. But let's talk about the pig. In rural areas during the 19th and early 20th centuries, fences around properties were not for keeping livestock in, but for keeping them out. Pigs and cows uh, pigs and cows were allowed to roam free and live off what they could find to eat in the woods around cabins and houses. And while each family branded their cattle, they notched the ears of their pigs with distinctive marks to show ownership. And that way, when fall came and it was time to butcher the hogs for the winter, they could round up and identify their own fucking swine. In the fall of 1878, though, the McCoys began to ran, round up their hogs for butchering, and when they found that one was missing, they did not 
act immediately surprised. Because after all, they had come to expect a certain amount of loss to predators or animals that that roam free uh, throughout the woods. However, they later noticed that one of the pigs now housed on the Hatfield farm bore the McCoy-style notches in its ear. Randolph McCoy went to Floyd Hatfield and demanded that the pig be returned, but Floyd countered that the hog was found on his land and was therefore his. Unsatisfied with this explanation, Randolph took Floyd to court, went the legal way, in the hopes of obtaining a decision that everybody could accept. The Justice of the Peace, Preacher Aunts Hatfield, <laughs> held the trial on the McCoy side of the river and chose the jury of six Hatfields and six McCoys to try the case. The primary witness was a guy named Bill Staten, a McCoy who was married to a Hatfield. <laughs> His testimony led Selkirk McCoy to side with the six Hatfield jurors against McCoy's claim, finding that the pig had not been stolen. Jesus Christ, this is what happens when your family tree doesn't fucking fork. While there was no immediate retaliation, the McCoys never forgot or forgave the decision, and their anger bubbled under the surface for the next two years. See, the inbreeding makes your temper shorter. If you guys watch Game of Thrones, you remember how mad Joffrey used to get? It's because he was inbred. No doubt, the story was passed around and augmented by men and moonshine while it festered. Then two years later, the brothers, Sam and Paris McCoy, uh, Randolph's nephews, shot and murdered Bill Staten while he was on a hunt hunting trip, which ended with one of the McCoys being injured. This time, the presiding judge was a guy named Valentine Hatfield. The jury found the McCoys not guilty by reason of self-defense. Hmm, okay. Bill Staten was not the only McCoy in the area to marry a Hatfield or vice versa. Because they were the two largest families in a small community, they often intermarried. Ugh. Just a straight line, family tree, no forks, no... No, oh my god... However, following Staten's murder, this practice became less acceptable, which proved to be a problem for Joss Hatfield and Rosanna McCoy, who I will talk about at great length after this message from this fake company. San Andreas just can't get enough of the Glory Hole theme park. It's the place for magic and adventure. We all like speaking rodents to entertain and educate our kids. And now with Jerry Gerbil, the kids have someone they can really relate to. Kids, come and play. I've got puppies to show you. Yay, Jerry's speaking rodents. Go on, kids, have fun. I know it's safe. Jerry's wearing a latex bodysuit. See you later, Mom. We're off to have fun with strangers. It's interesting, you know, the Greeks invented the glory hole. I happen to be Greek. You're welcome. Okay, let's talk about Joss Hatfield. It's funny, the, the longer that they, the more time they spend fucking each other, like fucking their own cousins, the worse the spellings of the names get. <sighs> anyway, so Joss was 18 years old, and he was Devil Anse's oldest son, while Rosanna, 21, a spinster, by the day's standards, was one of old Randall's youngest daughters. The two most likely met at the court case involving Sam and Paris McCoy, <laughs> Rosanna's cousins, and uh, 
Wow. Okay. Rosanna's cousins were Sam and Paris McCoy on trial for murdering that guy, the uh, the rat. And they apparently hit it off right away and took frequent walks alone through the woods, which everyone knows what that means. When her family found out what she was doing, they warned Rosanna to stay away from Jean's. But instead of listening, she ran away from home and moved in with Jean's family in West Virginia, who accepted her either out of love or to irritate the fuck out of the McCoys. Probably that. When Rosanna found herself pregnant, Johns made it clear that he had no plans to marry her, and she was hurt and disgraced. She tried to return home, but was turned out by her father, so she moved in with her aunt, Betty McCoy, and uh, though, she did, though he did not want to marry her, Johns missed Roseanne in her vagina and frequently visited her at her aunt's house. When the McCoys heard this, they became determined to keep the two separate by any means possible. They used their political influence to determine that Jean's had some outstanding warrant related to his moonshining activities. According to the adjutant general for Kentucky, Sam Hill, uh, sometime previous to the August election of 1882, the sheriff of Pike County appointed Tolbert McCoy, a special bailiff, to execute some bench warrants on Johnson Hatfield. Uh, which warrants had issued on indictments found against said Hatfield in the Pike Court, Pike Circuit Court for misdemeanors, and which warrants the sheriff himself had been unable to execute. Uh, wow. Okay. After they secured Jean's, Rosanna, in a wildly romantic gesture, rode madly through the woods by moonlight to the home of Devilance to tell him his son had been arrested and was being held by the McCoys until they could take him to Pikeville, Kentucky, to stand trial. Determined that his son should not fall prey to McCoy justice, Devil Us quickly organized a rescue party that led back across the river to the McCoys. Um, Tolbert McCoy, with two of his brothers, made the arrest of Hatfield under the warrant uh, and had started to Pikeville with their prisoner when they were intercepted by armed force of Hatfields. This group of Hatfields had been informed of the arrest by some friends and by immediately crossing the Tug Fork and the Big Sandy River, they took a, a route that just took them straight to the McCoys and the prisoner, and they were able to rescue him. In spite of Rosanna's sacrifice, Jean still remained uninterested in settling down or becoming a father. Instead, he abandoned her entirely and began courting his cousin, oh, my mistake, began courting her cousin, Nancy McCoy, whom he married in 81. Oh, man, Rosanna's baby died not long after it was born, and she did not live much longer, dying at 29 of what many said was a broken heart. <laughs> Suck my dick. Uh, hmm. Okay. So, furious at the way their sister had been used and thrown away, Rosanna's brother, brothers Tolbert, Farmer, and Bud... <laughs> Oof, we're getting in a real straight line family tree right now waited for a chance for revenge if anybody's going to have sex with my sister it's going to be me and that chance came at a relatively unexpected time Sam Hill explained soon afterwards at the August election in 1882 several of the Hatfields crossed over to the Kentucky side to attend the election as was their custom when during the day Big-ass Elson Hatfield, brother to Anderson Hatfield, the present leader of the Hatfield Band, and Tolbert McCoy engaged in fisticuffs, which was provoked and urged on by Hatfield, who was a very large, rotund man and far overmatched McCoy, who was a man Napoleonic in stature. 
McCoy soon found that he was overmatched and drew his knife and commenced to stab in Hatfield. Notwithstanding which, Hatfield continued to hold the advantage. Wow, tough fucking guy. And was in the act of braining McCoy with a large stone which he had when McCoy's brother came up to his assistance and shot Hatfield with a pistol. Okay, wait a minute. So he challenged him to a fistfight. McCoy's getting his ass beat in the fistfight, realizes he can't win, so he stabs him numerous times. And the dude is still beating his head in with a rock. So the other McCoy brother comes up and shoots him with a pistol. Damn. Sounds like the fair out here. According to the court records, the three stabbed big ass Ellison 26 times before shooting him. But miraculously, this fucking hard boiled son of a bitch continued to live for the next two days. Wow. Meanwhile, the local sheriffs, all Hatfields arrested the McCoy brothers and transported them to Pikesville to await trial. However, Devil Aunts had other plans for the men who morally wounded his brother. I believe that should say mortally wounded his brother, vowing, if Ellison dies, I'm going to kill them goddamn McCoy boys. The McCoys who had participated in that fight were arrested by the Pike County authorities and they were being detained in custody to await the results of Hatfield's wounds. Uh, when Anderson Hatfield and his gang took them by force from the custody of the Kentucky authorities and carried them back across the Tug River near where they detained them, uh, near where they detained them till Ellison Hatfield died some 36 to 48 hours later. And then they brought them back to the Kentucky side, uh, tying them to some bushes, and they shot them to death. The McCoy boys thus Slain were three in number, all brothers, all sons of Randolph McCoy, one of them being only 14, whom the Hatfields accused of complicity in the wounding of Ellison Hatfield. Altogether, Devil Aunts and his 20 men with him shot the three children that were there that were accused of the murder 50 times. For this murder of three McCoy brothers and the grand jury of Pike County and the next term of Pike Circuit Court returned three indictments against each one of the 23 people. Wow. Bench warrants were repeatedly issued on said indictments and were, as often, returned not found. Notwithstanding, many of the persons indicted frequently crossed the Kentucky side, but on such occasions, they were numerically so strong and so well armed as it was... Uh, it was like their intention to resist arrest, it seemed. Even if it, even if it had been attempted, they would have resisted successfully. <laughs> Enter Perry Klein, who was the second husband of Asa McCoy's widow, Martha. Years later, Asa had lost a rather large lawsuit concerning several thousand acres of prime West Virginia woodland. After the case against the Hatfields had lain dormant for several years... He used his political influence to get the charges against them reinstated. He also convinced the governor of Kentucky to appeal a special deputy sheriff to track down the Hatfields. He then went a step further and offered a reward for the arrest and prosecution of the men, including devil aunts. Naturally, that caused a bit of tension. Uh, Sam Hill continued in his statement by saying, Thus, matters rested for... Some five years or so in the Hatfields in the meantime, taking an active interest in Kentucky elections and admonishing the sheriff in whose hands the bench warrants might at such a time happen to be to stay away from the precinct or voting place on east side of Pike County and contiguous to the tug, which they were in the habit of visiting on election occasions on the day of their contemplation. 
plated visit, or if he should attend, to leave the bench warrants for their arrest behind, and their admonitions were headed till Frank Phillips was appointed deputy sheriff. When on one occasion, when an election was approaching, they sent uh, word to Phillips to keep away from said election as they wanted to attend, or if he attended, to leave the bench warrants against them behind, for if he was there with the bench warrants, they would cut him down. Phillips replied that his official business demanded his presence there that day and that he would be there and would have the bench warrants, and if they came, he would either take them or kill them too. Phillips went to the election, and the Hatfields approached within gunshot and fired a volley up through the brush, stampeding all but some eight or ten people. And the plucky little sheriff remained till late in the evening, but plucky as he is, he did not feel that he could accomplish their arrest. Damn. By this time, word of the feud had spread from out of the immediate community and into the surrounding area, and Mark Twain himself, as he was so often noted as doing, used the famous feud as inspiration for the satirical Huck Finn when Huck finds himself caught up between the feuding Shepherdsons and Granger Fords. I love Mark Twain. That guy commented on fucking everything. He was the roast master general, man. Uh, newspapers were beginning to publish embarrassing, art embarrassing articles detailing the backwoods shenanigans of these savage, ruthless, and toothless hillbillies. The American public became fascinated with the story, but the people of West Virginia and Kentucky were embarrassed and began to call on their leaders for action. But soon, they got it, and we'll talk about that after another advertisement for a company that doesn't exist and does not sponsor me. Hello? Hi, is Mark there? Yeah. It's me, Shannon. We met at Jack's party. Yeah, how can I forget? Wow, how you doing? I haven't heard from you in, uh... Nine months. Hello? Some moments change your life. San Andreas Telephone, for those difficult conversations. Lager, the beer that brought the forest down. I drive an exotic imported sports car. I eat exotic foreign food, like frankfurters and pizza. But when it comes to numbing my mind, I'm a patriot. I drink the beer that brought the forest down. I'm a lager man. And with the new 80-bottle trunk pack, you've got enough for the evening. Last night, I crapped in my bed and pissed in the closet. Hey, it's happy hour somewhere. Lager brings out the patriot in you. Nothing further of an eventful character occurred in the history of the Vendetta until the last fall of 87 when Frank Phillips, with two or three men, crossed over into Logan County to receive the prisoners who he said he supposed had by that time been arrested under the warrants issued by Governor Wilson. Based upon your requisition, but learning after he had crossed the state line that no warrants had been issued, or at least no arrests had been made, and meeting with Tom Chambers, who is said to have taken a prominent part in the murder of the three McCoy brothers and two others, and all three of whom were included in the indictment, could not resist so good an opportunity as to arrest him. And so he did. 
He arrested him and brought them back to Pike County, where they were served with the bench warrants and placed in jail. Finally. Wow. In response, the Hatfields decided to take one more or less furious attack on the McCoys in the hopes of wiping their enemy clan out of the picture for fucking good, according to an eyewitness testimony. To avenge the evasion and arrest, as it was supposed, the Hatfield crowd on the night of January 1st crossed the tug force in force, penetrated penetrated hard Pike County a distance of seven miles till they reached the peaceful mountain home of old man Randolph McCoy, which they surrounded and demanded a surrender from. A faithful watchdog had given warning, however, and the old man McCoy and his son Calvin, who was about 27 years old, arose, and the family had already retired for the night, and they made hasty prep for the best possible defense against such a heavy heavy group of assailants and odds, and the heavy volleys of assailants returned vigorous fire and held them at bay for some two or three hours, and until, and until the house which had been fired from without was almost ready to fall down, the young man leapt out and ran towards the corn cribs, having said to his father that if he could reach the crib, he would cover the father's retreat to the same point, and he believed from that retreat they could drive yet the rest of the marauders off. But when, about halfway from the dwelling to the crib, he fell dead with a bullet to his head, the old man then seized a double-barreled shotgun and leapt out of the window, giving both barrels at one enemy who, somewhat disconcerted for a moment, did not fire upon him till he was well out, of the, well out into the darkness, and although they fired several shots at him, he scampered off unhurt. In the meantime, one of the party had commanded his unmarried daughter, who occupied a room that was somewhat detached from the occup that from that occupied by her parents, to make a light. But she replied that she had neither fire nor matches. The command was repeated, and upon her failure to comply, she was shot through her left tit and killed instantly. Though she begged piteously for them not to execute their threat to shoot her for failing to make light, assuring them that it was not in her power to comply with the command. What? The old mother rushed from her room to go to her daughter, whereupon she was struck upon the head, knocked down and beaten insensibly, and left for dead upon the porch, at least with part of her person, with part of her person on the porch. The assailants withdrew just before the house was ready to fall at one end, first closing what little of the door's the door shutters, which had not been shot away, and with the evident purpose of burning the remaining members of the family alive. But after they were gone, another daughter, about 18 years old, rescued some bedding upon which she placed the body of her dead sister, the almost lifeless form of her mother, and the two children of Talbert McCoy, a boy about seven, and a little hunchback girl about five, uh, where they remained until the neighbors arrived at daylight. So by now, Sam Hill clearly emphasized with the McCoys or empathized with the McCoys, as do I, and how they had been treated, and he continued on very emotionally with his story. The heroic girl had her feet badly frostbitten, from which she has not yet recovered, and she could not avoid weeping freely as the old lady detailed to me in her presence the horror that terrible night. The little boy, too, is worthy of special mention for when he... Emerged from the burning dwelling, it was almost ready to fall. He thought of his little crippled sister who was still in the house, and he re-wow. He re-entered and again came forth leading her by the hand. 
He didn't cry during the whole time of the battle. Mrs. McCoy impressed me as a candid, honest old lady and was still unable to walk when I saw her on account of the several broken ribs, but morale was surprisingly high. And not surprisingly, there was a huge outcry that uh, the marauding Hatfields must be brought to justice. So, <laughs> fuck yeah. So it's English. English and the Irish. That's all this is. Just like uh, the, the Lincoln County War. Very similar. About the 8th of January, Frank Phillips, with a number of Kentuckians, again crossed the Tug Fork to arrest the outlaws and bring them to justice. Uh, they were fired on by old man Jim Vance and Captain Hatfield. And in the fight, which resulted, old man Vance, who was said to have been the most desperate man in the entire section, and his best friend of the Hatfields was killed. But the guy they called Cap Hatfield made his escape. Subsequently, Phillips and party made another incursion into Logan County and were again fired upon, but this time without warning. And in the fight that ensued, one Dempsey of the Hatfield party was killed and Bud McCoy of the Phillips party was severely wounded. In the two forays made by Phillips and his party during the present year, they succeeded in capturing six more of the indicted parties, all of whom were brought safely into Pike and served with warrants of arrest and then confined in the Pike County Jail, making nine in all of the 23 indicted persons now confined in the Pike County Jail, awaiting trial for the murder of the three McCoy brothers. Jesus Christ. Ironically, what began as a feud between two families now became a feud between two fucking governors, because the governor of West Virginia took issue with the governor of Kentucky sending deputies to capture citizens of his state to take them back to Kentucky for trial. Among those captured were Valentine wall hatfield and two of his sons-in-law they were very popular in their home state and had a large following among local citizens hmm. uh, still just 20 years removed from the civil war however section sectional tensions was still huge especially between border states like west virginia and kentucky uh, a newspaper account of the trial reveals these feelings which kind of confirm what i just said and it was an argument was heard today in the United States District Court on the motion for a right of habeas corpus in the case of Valentine Hatfield and eight others, citizens of West Virginia now confined in jail in Pike County. The Honorable Estas Gibbons appears for West Virginia. He said that he believed the Commonwealth of Kentucky had been the first in history of this country to seize and enjoy an opportunity for the invasion of a sister state and seizure of her citizens by a band of outlaws. The petition sets forth that the state of affairs has been brought to the notice of governor, the governor of Kentucky, who, while admitting that the citizens of West Virginia had been violently and wrongfully captured, yet refused to right the wrong. Wow. Oh, man. The right to settle the interstate question was distinctly conferred upon federal government, Governor Knott. And he said... If this was a controversy between states, as the argument of his learned brother had indicted them, this proceeding should be before the Supreme Court of the United States, which alone has jurisdiction in controversies between states such as this. From the fact that the attorney for West Virginia had seen fit to connect the chief magistrate of Kentucky with this ridiculous proceeding and assail his character in connection with it, he would read a letter from Governor Buckner defending himself. Uh, Mr. Knott then read the letter, which refutes the position taken by the governor of West Virginia. He 
He said that he had complied with every condition which Governor Wilson thought necessary and therefore supposed that steps had to be taken to give these fugitives proper trial. He knew nothing to the contrary until early in January after ex-Governor Knott, Attorney General Hardin, addressed the court. Among other things, though, he stated that the United States statute on issuing a right of habeas corpus explicitly requires that the person confined must make and sign the petition for his own release. In this case, the petition was not so made and not signed. Further, the petitions are not good because the conditions and facts of confinement are not set forth as the law requires. Ha ha. Judge Barr, in rendering his decision, stated that he felt great hesitancy in the matter, and the case was without precedent and was doubtful, the petitions being obscure. Such being the case, however, and the attorneys for the state of Kentucky having failed to show that the prisoners confined in the Pike County Jail have been placed there through due process of law, he inclined to the side claiming relief for the persons unjustly confined and would grant the right of habeas corpus returnable next Monday a week. What in the fuck? Uh, the following week, the Hatfields were removed from the jail in Pikeville, Kentucky, and transferred to Louisville to await trial. The nine West Virginians, known as the Hatfields, arrived here last night. The deputy United States Marshal and jailer of Pike County were the only guards during their journey. They will appear before the Honorable Judge Barr of the United States District Court Monday, where habeas corpus application of Governor of West Virginia will be further heard. Uh, the Kentucky governor at this time, uh, Kentucky governor Bolivar, he was a Confederate general. He looks like fucking Colonel Sanders, Confederate general Bolivar. Uh, the plea for habeas corpus finally went to the Supreme court, uh, and in Mahone versus justice 127 us 700, the court ruled Seven, seven to two that Kentucky was justified in trying the prisoners. And uh, I just kind of realized that habeas corpus, that might not be something that everybody knows what that means. Let me just get the proper definition. All right. Habeas corpus is a resource in the law through which a person can report an unlawful detention or imprisonment to a court and request that the court uh, order the custodian of the person, usually a prison official, to bring the, bring the prisoner to court to determine whether or not the detention is lawful or not. And on that charming note, let's talk more about people that don't sponsor the show and don't actually exist. And I will be right back to talk more about fucking Kentucky Governor Colonel Sanders. Tired of all the sunshine and good weather? Looking for a real American vacation? Visit the Shining Jewel and the Rust Belt Crown, Casa City. It's a real man's vacation. The pride of a nation is in Casa City. It's steel, ice, and poverty. Spend a romantic evening in the beauty of the nighttime river glow at the Flaming River. Watch real men who make things lose their jobs and fight on our special Closing the Mill guided tour. Come see what we're really made of. This is real America. Drunk, proud, unemployed, and angry. Hear the eagle roar in Casa City. This is what the heartland is all about. If only the world was less like this. I could use a smoke. Hey, put that out! And more like this. I could use a smoke. You murderer! I might have children one day! 
Smoking kills, unless you kill first. If you're around a smoker, you will die. Smokers may look relaxed and like they're having fun. Don't believe it. Vote yes on Proposition 421. Let's outlaw smoking everywhere, even in people's homes, and allow honest citizens to legally kill anyone who smokes. Let's live in a world without smokers. Prohibition works. Let's prove it. Let's move up the food chain. It's time to smoke the smokers. Vote yes on Proposition 421. All right, so it seems like Johnny Cochran was uh, in a full effect as their attorney for the majority of this, but they finally got the trial underway in the state of Kentucky in 1889, in August. And after hearing passionate and conflicting testimonies from both sides, the jury convicted eight of the Hatfield clan of murder and sentenced seven of them to life in prison. Ellison Mounts, likely the illegitimate son of Ellison Hatfield, was sentenced to death and was hung on February 18, 1890. The mentally challenged young man's last words were, They made me do it. The Hatfields made me do it. Ouch. Well, it sucks to be him. Ooh, yeah, he does look challenged. Yeah, it was... Oh, there's a pretty good picture of him swinging, too. Uh, it would be nine years before the last men involved in the New Year's Day massacre stood trial. And according to Publishers Press Dispatch of Williamson, West Virginia in 1898, Deputy United States Marshal Dan Cunningham, with two detective aides, late on Monday night on Poplar Creek in this county, captured the notorious Johnson Hatfield. Hatfield was taken by surprise and surrendered. He was hurried to Kentucky, and Hatfield was wanted for the part he played. Uh, at the time, the McCoy home was burned and a defenseless woman, uh, Alifair McCoy, and a male member of the McCoy function were killed by the Hatfields in the time of the vendetta on the New Year's night uh, nine years ago. Since then, a charge of murder has st stood against him, and a large reward has been offered for his arrest. He had outwitted the constables time and time again, and it was reported here that this morning the deputies were after Hatfield's brother as well, Devil Ants, and others of the clan, and that serious trouble seemed imminent. This time, the press was wrong, though. Johns was tired of running, and his family was tired of feuding. He stood trial in 1898, was convicted, and not surprisingly, his appeal fell on deaf ears. After 10 years, Johnson Hatfield must go to prison for life for the murder of Alifair McCoy, and this marks another step in the Hatfield-McCoy feud, which created a reign of terror in Kentucky until 10 years ago. This is another quote from the, from the newspaper. And has broken out at intervals since, but only in the way of individualized killing. Most of the leaders have either been convicted or have been shot to death. The case of Johnson Hatfield was affirmed by the Court of Appeals yesterday. His victim, a woman and he was convicted in Pike County and given a life sentence and has fought the case desperately to the end. Hatfield was indicted in Pike County for the murder of Alifair McCoy in August of 1888 and also was indicted for having previously conspired with others to kill her. Hatfield had 10 years of freedom before he was finally apprehended. He was arraigned for trial the first time in September of 1898 where he obtained a change of venue to Floyd County on the ground of prejudice. Hatfield then appealed from the life sentence of the Floyd Circuit Court on the ground of error of instruction. The Court of Appeals, in the decision by Judge Burnham, sustained the verdict. The case is notable as being one of the few successful convictions in the feud. By the time that Johns Hatfield was convicted, both the Hatfields and the McCoy families 
had determined that it was in everybody's best interest to put the fighting behind them. A new century was dawning, and with it, a new hope for solving problems in better, more dramatic, or less dramatic ways. Old Randall Hatfield became a ferry boat driver and worked faithfully until 1914 when he was badly burned in an accidental fire and then died. In the meantime, Devil Lance grew tired of his nickname and reputation, and not long after the last trial, he experienced uh, some sort of a religious conversion and sold out royally and got baptized. Ugh. And for the rest of his life, he was indeed a pussy. A model citizen, if you will. Fucking jerk. Valentine Hatfield served out his life sentence, but his two sons-in-law were released after only 14 years. Over the 25 years, between the murder of Asa Harmon McCoy and Ellison Mount's execution, 12 men and women were killed during the feud. Eight McCoys, four Hatfields. Most of the deaths took place in two major altercations in 1882 and 1888. Still, the fact that real people had their lives cruelly and then unnecessarily cut short has kind of faded into the background as the legend of the Hillbilly War, or Hillbilly Gang War. Instead... 20th century television shows use the feud as stuff of comedic fodder. As early as 1923, you know, it can be seen in Buster Keaton's film, Our Hospitality, and it focused on the Canfield and McKay feud. <laughs> okay. Disney made a cartoon short in 1946 entitled The Martins and the Coys. Guys are not slick. In 49, Samuel Goldwyn released... Rosanna McCoy, a melodrama supposedly based on the romance between the title character and Johns Hatfield. That same year, screen songs featured a fight between cats, the Catfields, and the McCowns. <laughs> uh, the following year, Warner Brothers released Hillbilly Hair, in which Bugs Bunny finds himself involved in a feud between Martin and Coy. In 1951, the Abbott and Costello movie Coming Around the Mountain told the story of the Winfields and the McCoys. A popular episode of the Andy Griffith Show had it for its storyline, a long-standing feud between the Wakefields and the Carters. The Flintstones, in 1964, released an episode that pitted the Flintstones against the neighboring family of the Hat Rocks. In 1968, feud with a dude. <laughs> Featured a conflict between the McCoys and the Hatfields over a stolen hen. In 75, a made-for-TV movie on the feud starred Jack Palanchi as Devil Ons and Steve, For Steve Forrest as Randall McCoy. Steve Forrest? I don't know. In 79, the game show Family Feud <laughs> pitted... Oh my god, I saw this. Descendants of the Hatfield and the McCoy families against each other for a cash prize and a fucking pig. <laughs> In 99, Rodeo and Julie Ed, an interactive play, brought a Hatfield and McCoy spin to a Shakespearean overdone, I'm not even going to call it a classic. In 2011, a resort in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, opened the Hatfield and McCoy dinner show, a musical comedy. Oh, that's in poor taste, brother. In 2012, the History Channel released the three-part miniseries entitled Hatfields and McCoys, which I thought was terrible. I wanted to see more cousin fucking and less talking, but whatever. Humorous portrayals aside, many of the descendants of both families have made respectable careers and lives for themselves. Henry D. Hatfield served as governor of West Virginia, while Brian Hatfield was state senator in Washington state. 
The last member of either clan to die a violent death was a police chief named Sid Hatfield, who, ironically, was murdered while uh, trying to keep the peace his ancestors so devoutly disrupted. Uh, for a change, no McCoys were involved in his death. Many descendants have also made their mark in the arts. Clyde McCoy achieved fame as a jazz trumpeter during 1930s and 40s. In the modern era, Juliana Hatfield is a very successful singer-songwriter. Really. In 2000, both families organized a joint reunion that drew more than 5,000 descendants. Three years later, 60 cousins signed a public truth in Waynesboro, Virginia. And I actually uh, did did a little bit re did a little bit of looking into Juliana Hatfield's music career, and she is pleasantly enjoyable. I would uh, actually strongly recommend checking her out if you like kind of the. Uh, imagine if Courtney Love wasn't a fucking asshole and heart was just a little more easy to listen to. Strikingly similar. She writes, she writes a good song, this lady. Um, not bad. I was uh, expecting something a little bit different, quite a bit angrier. I think I was ex ex uh, expecting more like a uh, in-this-moment type of band, but pretty damn good. Good singing voice. Kind of sounds like a like a hippie chick is singing sludge. I don't know, man. It's, it's just good. It's good. I would advise you check it out. So it's surprisingly good. Pleasantly surprised I was. All right, let's see. They've signed their selling out petition, their truce. Okay, 60 Cousins signed a public truce in Waynesboro, Virginia, saying, We ask by God's grace and love that we be forever remembered as those that bound together the hearts of two families to form a family of freedom in America. The governors of West Virginia and Kentucky, Bob Wise and Paul Patton, respectively, each signed proclamations proclaiming June 14th, the day the truce was signed to be Hatfield and McCoy Reconciliation Day. By this time, of course, the Hatfields and the McCoy feud had ceased to be considered a shame and had come to be seen as something of a charming remnant of a bygone era. Oh, for fuck's sake. There was even a series of Hatfield-McCoy trails that allowed all-terrain vehicle riders to enjoy more than 500 miles of scenic woodland in and around where the two families once lived and definitely fought. That is poor taste, sir. West Virginia and Kentucky, once ashamed of their connection with backwoods barbarism, are now proud of the connection and feud and even use it to draw tourism and uh, the tourist money, of course, to their states. In 99, they received a grant from Small Business Administration to create the Hatfield and McCoy Historic Site Restoration. Oh, that's just poor taste, man. They used this money to restore and recreate many of the historic sites connected with the feud. According to the website, promoting the tours at $15 a person. Take a two-hour tour on a comfortable 14-passenger air-conditioned tour bus with friendly and a knowledgeable tour guide to see... And encounter the sites while learning the history of the famous Hatfield-McCoy feud. You will visit many a place where the feud itself played out. These areas of interest include, but are not limited to, the Pikeville City Park, where several battles were fought during the Civil War as well. Many people believe these battles laid the foundations for the feuds. The park is also where James Garfield was commissioned as a brigadier general during the Civil War, leading up to the presidency. Ironically, it was during the election for Garfield's presidency when the fight broke out 
at the election place, which led to the fight and death of Ellison Hatfield at the hands of the three McCoy boys. See and hear the history of Pikeville Methodist Church, which split into a north and south church on Main Street as part of the war and part of the debate on slavery. See and visit the Pike County Courthouse, where the Hatfields are tried for their crimes against the McCoys and where Ellison Cotton Top Mounts is sentenced to hang was sentenced to hang, were tried for fucking court. Jesus fucking Christ. Goddamn hillbillies that wrote this fucking advertisement for a museum and they can't even use the right word conjugation. You will also see the hanging site and cemetery where Cottontop rests in an unmarked grave. Then how the fuck do you know it's his grave? You will see the Pikeville homes of Randolph, Sarah. Yeah, okay, Jack, Jack, Jack. You fucking desecrating grave sites now too and selling tickets to it. Good for you. Oh, there's a historical mark you, marker commemorating the paw-paw tree incident. The episode is a result of the August 82 Election Day fight. Uh, they exchanged heated words with Ellison, started a fight. They Later, the three brothers were captured, tied to this tree, and shot. Oh, oh, wow, it's a plaque in front of the murder tree. So while historians have spent hundreds of hours researching and evaluating the scores of pages of information and the original participants... Much of what is known is still based on the family legends and speculations. Still, it seems that most of the modern tourists prefer the sensationalized story to the sad truth of the untimely, violent death of more than 12 family members and neighbors over quite literally fucking nothing. But you can't win them all. Man, that is insane to me. They signed a treaty in the 2000s. God fucking damn, dude. So, if any of you listeners have ever had a, been involved in a blood feud, please tell me your uh, blood feud stories. I would love to hear them, because that does fascinate me. Um, like, generation blood feud. Not like you got in a fight with somebody and their brother. Like, your father hated this guy, and you hated the father and his son, and then you murdered... Well, whatever. If any of you have any experience with this hillbilly blood feud shit, I am extremely interested to hear your story. And sorry for calling you hillbilly in advance, but I just don't get it. Um, anyway, on that note, let's talk about you guys and talking about me. Uh, let me talk about how much I appreciate it right after a word from this non-sponsor. I miss little Vincent so much. He loved to play baseball. I, I was driving him to practice. I guess I was busy making eyes at the guy driving next to me. I didn't notice he was sticking his head out the window, his blonde hair blowing in the wind. Uh, honey, Vincent's hair was black. That's not the point. We're lucky he was adopted, so we just got another. It's my life, and I don't want to forget anything. Documenting every moment of life is very important. Take plenty of pictures of your wife. You never know when she might leave you for another man. It's important to document your happiness while it lasts. And use Vakari Film. When your son wins the game, when your daughter gets herpes. Vakari Film. Memories are forever. Sort of. It's me. Tomorrow, I will dream in green, yellow oceans, and froth. On the beach. It's me or beauty. I'm an individual. What is love? It's me. Beauty. Meaning. Oh, and sight. I need designer perfume. It's me. Shine. Buy Helmet Shine. Helmet Shine is a fantasy. Helmet Shine is a spectacle. Helmet Shine is you. Is you. Oh, if you desire it. I'm an individual. What I is love? I'm the right. space between your ears. Meaning. Advertising. People on beaches. Shine. Let the children die. Tomorrow, I'm the white What's rabbit. I dream in black and white. Shine. Own it. 
It's me. You're beautiful. That's enough. Shine by Helmet Shine. Man, shine this. Anyway, uh, so thank you very much for spreading the word. I can uh, give a personal shout out for the number one spot on the last four episodes. It is the city of Chicago and I got an email from somebody named Max. I want to thank you, Max, for reaching out and for spreading the word in Chicago, because I know that was you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for your suggestions. They are definitely being worked on. Uh, Number two, the most popular city, or I am most popular in Chicago, followed by Los Angeles, followed by Orlando, Florida, which is, I believe, a new one to this list, also Kansas City, Missouri, Dallas, Texas, Greenville, South Carolina, Nashville, Tennessee, Portland, Oregon, and Houston, Texas. Good mix right there. Thank you guys all for making this podcast uh, continue to be a thing. Thank you for taking the time to listen and consistently reaching out and rating the show and doing all that other great stuff you do. I've actually had some pretty goddamn exciting offers that would not have been the case. I genuinely believe that if it wasn't for you guys and your support. So please keep spreading the word. Please keep rating it five stars. Um, so on and so forth. I really appreciate it. And as long as you guys do that, I will be able to potentially monetize and continue to do this and crank out episodes that you guys would like to hear. And if you have a suggestion, please do not hesitate to email me at springheeledjack at anthologyofhorror.com. Seeing as I am officially a consummate professional, I also have a website and On that website, which is anthologyofhorror.com, you can find the link to my Patreon. And I'm not asking anybody for anything. I understand times are tough. Believe me, I do. Um, But if everyone donated a dollar a month, I could do this full time. And I could crank out probably several episodes a day. Food for thought. You guys don't don't have to do it. I'm not going to stop doing it. I'm not going to threaten any of that shit because it's not true. But... You could get a lot more of these if you guys all were able to donate a dollar a month. It would essentially cover everything. And then some might even be able to do like a tour or something. Who knows? Uh, But that being said, thank you guys very much for tuning back in. Uh, It's always a pleasure to inform you as to whatever spooky shit I'm on a roll about. And I appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to do so. So. Thank you for your time. Thank you for tuning in. And until next time, stay fucking spooky.